Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Romans 3, beginning with verse 21. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is the word of the Lord. As we saw two weeks ago when we were last in this text, when Martin Luther was translating the Bible into German, he wrote in the margin of the book right here at the point of our text this morning, beginning with verse 23, here is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Now what is this chief point? The chief point is that we cannot be saved by the law of God. And this is because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But through the law does not come salvation. Salvation comes only and always through the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The law manifests, or the law puts on public demonstration and places on exhibit God's righteousness and man's sin. And this righteousness of God manifested or visible among us in Jesus Christ is the theme of the Old Testament. From God clothing Adam and Eve in the skins of dead animals, to the Messianic Psalms, to Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, and throughout the Old Testament, in the endless blood of the sacrifices, all pointing forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the Old Testament pointed forward to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament was no scheme for getting God's people to live good enough to warrant heaven, but it was a manifestation of the coming one, the Messiah, who by God, the Father's anointing, would make God's own righteousness visible 
to sinful man, so that as Moses' serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up so that all who look to him in faith would be saved. And so Jesus was lifted high on the cross outside of the walls of the city. In other words, suffering the indignity of banishment and at the crossroads so that his nakedness was seen by all. And he was visible to all, the sin offering that the entire Old Testament pointed forward to and the entire New Testament points back to. This is the meaning of the statement for all those who believe, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, it wasn't that, uh, that the Jews, having the law, were able to please God by keeping the law and everybody else was banished to, to hopelessness. And this is... Uh, This is a very serious issue. How were, the, how were God's people of the Old Testament saved? How were they saved? And there's a tremendous pressure on the church today to change the translation of Scripture and to change the doctrine of salvation in such a way as to not appear in any way to be putting down the Jews who are guilty of anti-Semitism. So you have the Pope not this particular pope as much as the previous one. You have them uh, engaging in, in lies to Jews, telling them that they have a separate path to salvation. And, and the language of our elder brother in the faith, some of you know that that's what's been said, you know, that they are our elder brothers in the faith. And always uh, bad doctrine hides behind words that sound right. And certainly none of us are going to deny that the Jews are our elder brothers. But in faith, isn't that precisely why the Jews killed Jesus? Because they would not have it by faith. They would have it by righteousness, by their righteousness, the reason for the writing of the book of Romans. And so we have to realize, (laughs) you know... So much of your life is going to fall on the basis of whether or not you yourself make a point of saying no in your life and whether you honor those who help you to say no. Because it's the spirit of our age that everything is yes. And that you have your yes and I have my yes, but your yes doesn't compete with my yes. And so you come to a text like this, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you say, okay, there's no distinction, right? That sounds positive, doesn't it? You know, there's no distinction. We're all into that. You know, we're all over that. You know, there's no distinction. Pluralism, diversity, right? We're all into it. And then the immediate next statement is, for all, what? Have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, the minute you put into that statement the Jews, 
Jews have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Gentiles have sinned. Jews have sinned. This is what the book of Romans has been saying. And then you hear the Pope referring to them as our elder brothers. You hear the Pope saying there's another path of salvation that's parallel to Jesus Christ for the Jews. And you go, wait a second, I thought there was no distinction. And then the language gets all tangled up because that's the nature of battles of doctrine is it's all language, right? And if you don't have a heart for God saying no to you, you won't have a heart for God saying no through your pastors and elders. You'll just think that your inclinations and, and, and your feelings rule the world. And when Paul says there's no distinction, what will you do? Well, you'll just sort of bleep. You know, you'll go right over that. Yeah, that sounds good, you know. And you will never, ever come to the knowledge of God's truth. You won't do it. Because God's truth is always saying no as well as yes. And the yes is defined by the no. And so here, the no is what? No distinction. Well, if there's no distinction, then that doesn't mean there are two parallel paths to God And the Jews have one and we have the other. And isn't that nice? Because we live in a post-Holocaust world and we can't be accused of anti-Semitism. And you say, but he doesn't say that here. Well, I say, it's the necessary extrapolation. It's the necessary inference. It's the necessary truth we say today. We say no to Roman Catholics once more. Roman Catholics are always making these terrible errors where somehow it's works. And of course, if it works with them, if it's infusion, then of course, there is a distinction and there remain Jews and Gentiles and one has this path and one has this path and make sure you stick to your path. Now, how many of you are Jews? How many of you are Gentiles? All right, now you Gentiles, you have this path, you Jews, because there is distinction, but it says there's no distinction. It says there's no distinction. You must be people of the word, and you must give yourself to thinking carefully about the text of Scripture and carefully about the words that are spoken to you by those who claim to be teaching the true doctrine of God. You must be a Berean. And so now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested in being witness, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So in other words, there's no distinction. Everyone has, has sinned. And there's no distinction, all who believe. And once again, what we want to do is say, well, you know, for all who believe. You know, that's positive, right? And yes, it is very positive, I think. Do you think it's positive? I think it's positive, all who believe. But there's no distinction, we have all sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Don't ever forget this when you're in a church with other people and you look at people who are sinning big sins right now and you think, oh, that's bad. And the answer is yes, and you're bad. After many, many weeks of fiddling with it, it will get better. Ears are sensitive things, you know? They, 
there's some things I can put up very well with my ear, but some things up with which I cannot put. So, apart from the law, the law manifests, the law puts on public demonstration, on exhibit, God's righteousness and man's sin. There is no distinction between men who look to Jesus lifted high on the cross, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, Chinese and Korean, Sudanese, Nigerian, German, Russian, Nicaraguan, Argentinian, even North Americans may look to him and be saved. Even decadent North Americans. There is no distinction. And all of us are saved apart from the law. The only ones who are being saved and will be saved are those who look to Jesus because among us sinful men, there is none righteous, no, not one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So those who look in faith to Jesus Christ are being justified as a gift. Now what does it mean to be justified? To be justified is to be found righteous by God. When a man is justified, he is declared righteous at the judgment seat of the holy God. Picture yourself standing before God, seated on his throne, and think about your thoughts and your emotions there. Two things will overwhelm you as they overwhelmed Adam and Eve the second they sinned and then hid themselves from God who came to talk to them in the Garden of Eden. First, you will see him in his holiness. He will be perfect in his holiness. This is the righteous judge of all the earth. He is the only truly righteous judge that there has ever been. Second, you will want a place to hide because of your terrible shame. You. You will want a place to hide because of your terrible shame. You know, you wonder why I and others of us are fighting so hard against those normalizing sexual perversion in the church today. And the reason is, shame is a gift. Shame is a gift. And you should protect people's shame. Because shame is the result of the law that drives us to God. Why should anybody be robbed of the great gift of shame that God in his kindness gave to us? See, think about it that way. Why should anybody be robbed of the wonderful gift of shame that God has blessed us with? Every one of you who is a believer know what I'm talking about. (laughs) You know? We know what a gift our shame has been to us. So why should we rob other people just so we can cop a posture as being progressive to the world? Because that's all it is. Why should the church say that abortion is fine? It doesn't help anybody to rob them of their shame. You know? 
It doesn't help them. If you have faith for your shame before God, why don't you have faith for other people's shame? And so picture yourself standing before a holy God, the judge of all the earth, the righteous judge of all the earth, and you will be, you will be naked. You will be stripped of all your self-justifications, all your copying of a posture as a victim, you know? There will be no, every mouth will be stopped. You won't be able to blame things on me. Your mama, your papa, you won't be able to blame anything on anyone because you will see your shame as it is. God will reveal it to you there. Even if you spent your life running from it here, you will be before the righteous God. You won't be standing there in your works. You won't be standing there in your work of faith You will have nothing to give to him. Because being justified is a gift. It is not something you earn. And you will have to find some place to stand that is holy. Or you will be consumed by his wrath. Because God is angry every day at the wicked. And so you will stand naked before him. Every thought, every motive, every hidden thing will be revealed. And at that moment, you will either be clothed in the righteous garments of the blood of Jesus, or you will be clothed in nothing but shame. And which will it be? Are you spending your life trying to justify yourself as a Christian after coming to him by faith in the righteousness of Jesus? Are you trying now to earn his approval with your works? Do you think that your works and the blood of Jesus will be what covers you before the throne of God? The minute Adam and Eve sinned, They went and hid themselves from God who came to talk to them in the Garden of Eden. And this is the same thing that will happen to us and should happen to us every single day. That we go before God and ask for mercy through Jesus Christ. Another word on this shame This will not be the shame that you feel in front of your father or mother. It will not be your grandpa's disapproval. It will not be the shame of villagers accusing you of being educated and rich in an elite. It will not be the shame of a viral video showing that moment when you are at your most despicable. It will not be the shame of getting a bad grade on a paper or test. It will not be the shame of forgetting to show up at a recital where you're to accompany another student. It will not be the shame of asking the woman you love to marry you and being rejected. It will not be the shame of getting fired. Not the shame of fornication or lesbianism or adultery. And these things being found out by your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to be very careful when it comes to shame because we have an easy time replacing the shame that we feel in the face of others 
to the shame that we actually have before God. This is not to say that the shame of standing before others is not helpful in some way. This is not to say that your shame at your sin being publicly exposed is not a good thing. But we spend way too much time thinking about other people and no time thinking about God. It is God with whom we have to do. Yes, we should hear other people. But we should always hear other people and gauge their condemnations of us only insofar as they con- comport, they conform, they, they, they tell the truth about the judgment of God. We should never feel shame about those things which are not condemned in Scripture. The whole world is constantly shaming Christians who say, that to be effeminate is a degraded passion. To say this is to be shamed today. And yet, what did I just do? I quoted scripture. And you're going to face all your life deciding whether you will stand before God and own the shame that is properly used according to scripture and according to the testament of his Holy Spirit in your heart, or whether you're going to spend your life trying to avoid the shame of other people. You can't do both. You can't hold on at the same time to the shaming of this world and the shaming of God and think that that they're integrated, that they're testimonies to one another. It is true that if you leave your wife and it's in an Asian culture and you don't provide for your children, you'll be shamed by your Asian culture and family and community. And so that's helpful. But it's only helpful insofar as it points you to your position before God. Shame is a gift of God. And it's not a gift because it helps us live in conformity to social and familial standards. It's a gift because it testifies. True shame, that is, it testifies to us of God's holiness and our utter bankruptcy and failure to glorify him. There before the judgment seat of God in his throne room, we will soon stand, and there will be no excuses. We will have nothing in ourselves by which to justify ourselves. The most godly person you've ever read about or known will have nothing in himself or herself by which to justify himself or herself. Why? Because there is none righteous. There's not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every last man and woman who has ever lived and will ever live. Now then, what hope is there? Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What joy to hear these most important words of all of Scripture. Being justified is no work we can do. The proud receive that as a horror. The humble receive that as as a blessing. It's such a relief. It's such a relief to every one of us that it's a gift. We 
What is it to be justified? To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. What is a gift? A gift is something we don't earn. What is grace? Grace is kindness and favor that we don't deserve. Unmerited favor, unwarranted favor, undeserved blessings received from God. How do we receive this gift that comes only by God's grace? Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What is redemption? Well, redemption, to redeem, is to buy something back. We are delivered by the payment of a price. Our redemption is our being bought back from what? Well, from the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is sin, death, and hell. The wrath of God is received in this life through all the sufferings we have as a result of the fall. It's received through death itself, and it's received eternally by being banished to the bottomless pit by God because he is angry with the wicked every day. And to all eternity, those who are banished to hell will give testimony to the righteousness of God. So we are delivered by the payment of a price. Our redemption is our being bought back from sin, death, and hell by Jesus Christ. God, in his mercy, has sent his own son to be a sin offering for us sinners. God, in his mercy, has redeemed us in Christ Jesus, in his suffering and in his death. Jesus Christ obeyed God perfectly and thus purchased our freedom and eternal life. We have nothing good in ourselves. We are only sin. And I don't speak again of your shame before your friends or your mother or grandfather. We have to do with God, not our neighbors or brothers or ancestors. We have to do with God alone. And he himself has declared here in his holy word that none of us is righteous. But praise God, there is one righteous one. And that's Jesus Christ. And you know something, as I was preparing this sermon, I just thought over and over again that (laughs) that God is jealous. This is his name. And God is jealous for the righteousness of his son. God will not have you competing with his son. You come to God with your righteousness thinking that then he will cooperate with you. God is jealous. He's jealous for the righteousness of his son. He's jealous for the glory of his son. He's jealous for the honor of his son. There is no other path than Jesus. It's so obvious in this world to see people who hate God They think they hide it, often with religious language, often with Christian language. 
But you listen to them and you listen carefully to see if there's only testimony that nothing in their, their hand they bring but simply to the cross they cling. You can just hear them clinging to so much righteousness. But then justification is not a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Justification comes because they're righteous. And yet God, in his great love, sent his son for us to put our faith completely and totally in him. And he will save us. God sent his son to do the work of redemption. God's son paid the penalty for the sin of all men and women, boys and girls, who look to his son in faith, trusting only in him. Only in him. And this is the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 3.18 it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know, yesterday I went to a, a wedding, and it was in a Roman Catholic church, and I was, uh, I was, we all were struck by the absence of any of the normal paraphernalia of the Roman Catholic church. It, it could have been a Protestant church, but I was explaining to no, it wasn't you. I don't know who it was. Zion, maybe. One of my grandchildren. That there were two things in that church that indicated that it was a Roman Catholic church. One of them was that Jesus, in a figure, an idol, was hanging from the ceiling up front. And we Protestants don't do that. Because we know that God will not have us have graven images. The other was, I pointed to the table at the center of the chancel area up front. And I said to to Zion, that table is called in a Roman Catholic church, what? What is it called? It's called the altar. This is the communion table. What's the difference? Well, on an altar you do what? You sacrifice. And a Roman Catholic priest when he's ordained, is given permission to sacrifice the body, the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the Mass is. But did you hear this here? It says, for Christ also died for our sins once for all. He doesn't need to be sacrificed incessantly all through history. His work was completed Now, you may think it's a distinction without a difference. But do you realize that the more times you go to Mass in the Roman Catholic Church, the more hope of salvation you have? You have to work the sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church to be saved. That's the whole nature of the thing. And so you come, and perpetually Jesus is sacrificed, and you participate in the sacrifice, you eat his body, you drink his blood, and you become holy. You're infused with his righteousness, day by day, sacrament by sacrament. And yet here it says, Christ also died for our sins once for all. Once. 
He's not being sacrificed when we have communion. His work is completed. Then in 1 Peter 2.24, we read, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus bore your sins on the cross. You think of the worst sin that you've committed, if you can come up with one. And that sin, Jesus bore on the cross. And so what? Well, so all the hymnody of the church. The psalms, the songs, spiritual songs, the choruses. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and forever. World without end, amen and amen. Uh, From this come all of the exclamations of praise from us because he bore our sins on the cross. And so we sing of Jesus and sing of Jesus and sing of Jesus and sing of Jesus and sing of the cross because this is our joy. Our joy isn't in our own righteousness. How many of you came this morning joyful about your righteousness? It's a joke. Why would you come to... There, I mean, you know, I could name a lot of churches where that would work. One of them has solar cells out in front. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. If you go look at their hymnal, I don't know why I was in that church, but I was in it once, and I opened up the hymnal. It was the most horrible, godless thing you could ever imagine. You know why? Their hymnal is filled with worship of the creation rather than the creator. It's all green. What a horrible thing to worship yourself. I mean, many of you are narcissists. And, 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 and how's that doing for you? You know, as you, as you like yourself better, do you find that you're better at liking yourself? You know, you watch people that like themselves and stroke themselves and, and cuddle themselves and, you know. And you know, they're the most unhappy people on the face of the earth. And it seems as if their mission becomes making everybody else as unhappy as they are. You know, worshiping ourselves and our creation, you know, all the parts of creation, it just doesn't do anything for us because God has sent his son. And God's jealous for the glory of his son. And doesn't it make sense that if God wants us to look to the righteousness of Jesus, if he wants us to look to his blood and to the cross, doesn't it make sense that he'll make us miserable looking anywhere else? Doesn't it make sense that true joy will come from Jesus? Because what? Well, the joy that we put in Jesus honors God. God is jealous for his own glory. Jesus Christ 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. You know what? Jesus Christ was sent by his father to go on display before the entire world. You can make the mistake of thinking that it was Pilate that crucified Jesus. It wasn't Pilate. You can think it was the Jews who cried out, crucify him, give us Barabbas, crucify him. And you can think it was the Jews who crucified Jesus. But God sent him to be a public, very public propitiation in his blood. Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross and lifted it up there at the crossroads outside the city walls. They were agents, but they weren't the effective agent. It was God the Father who sent his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. You know, Albert Schweitzer was a great organ player, but he was the worst theologian in the world. Because Albert Schweitzer wrote that, that, that God, in Jesus Christ, discovered what happened on the cross. That it was an unfortunate end to what had been a promising career. It was God himself, the Father Almighty, who displayed his Son publicly as a propitiation for our sins. Now, what is a propitiation? Well, God is angry with the wicked every day. This is the witness of Scripture. And you and I are wicked, and your son and daughter is wicked, your dad and mom are wicked. Every day God is angry with the wicked. We're all sinners. We're all separate. From faith in Jesus Christ, we're all under God's anger and condemnation. But a propitiation appeases God's wrath. It turns it aside from its object. And by the death of his own son, God's wrath against sinful man has been turned aside. But not just turned aside, it's been replaced with his favor. Now, you know how people will throw out the word ontological? I once called up my favorite philosophy professor and I said, would you please explain to me precisely what the word ontological means? And he said, oh, it doesn't mean anything. And that's what I thought. (laughs) I think most times when you read ontological, you should just replace it with deep. Okay, it works fine. Now, when you hear that the anger of God is turned aside from you, and that it's replaced with his favor, let me ask you, do you ontologically experience this favor and this turning aside of God's wrath? Deeply. This is the gift that God gives us through the church. 
God is pleased to be invisible. But he becomes visible to us in the fellowship of believers. And so as we accept each other, sinners that we are, and love each other, sinners that we are, this is the love of God. And this is why God is so jealous for the unity of his bride. Because we are to demonstrate to each other the acceptance of God. And just as it's not because we deserve it with God, it's not because we deserve it with each other. If we don't work to earn God's favor, why would we work to earn each other's favor? I can tell you that the thing that gives most comfort to the pastors and elders in their difficult work is when you confess that you have nothing to commend yourself. In other words, when you state your sin. And what's most difficult is when we have to remind you of your sin. When we have to try to convince you against your will that you are a sinner. This should never have to happen in the church, but it happens constantly, right? But you think about this, that God demonstrates his righteousness. And he displays it publicly when he puts his son on the cross and his son's blood comes out. And that blood turns his wrath aside from you. And then it gives you favor, forgiveness, acceptance, freedom. It's an unbelievable gift. Unbelievable. And you and I have the privilege of reconciling others to God. How? By being as accepting of sinners. In the shower this morning, I'm thinking, you know, it's where all my most creative thoughts come. And now that I don't smoke, used to be smoking was a real help. I mean, seriously, any, if any of you have ever smoked, you know what I'm talking about. Brilliance comes to you. But don't smoke. Take showers instead. So this morning I was in the shower. And I was thinking about the issue of God's kindness to us and what it means for him to turn aside his wrath from us and receive us. And it seems to me that we, as Christians with each other, and you'll agree with me on that, should receive each other, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? It would be perverse to be forgiven by God and not to forgive others, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? If the Bible says here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, it would be a terrible thing for us to be nitpickers and gunny sackers 
in our relationship to each other, right? Right? Can you see this? It would be very perverse to take the free grace of God and turn it into a moralistic system where we keep track in our relationship with our husbands and wives. Right? But I was thinking about that church. And I abominate their song, their, their sign. And what does it say? It says a welcoming and an affirming church. And I was thinking, really, we ought to put on the front with the rainbow and the, what, what's all this stuff? You know, the rainbow and, you know, the LGBT. What? Oh, okay, okay, sorry, excuse me. We ought to put on our website and on our sign a welcoming, affirming place. Because that's what it means to have the wrath of God turned aside from us. And we have the message of reconciliation. We have the only hope that homosexuals have, which is to introduce them to their shame and to repentance and to the faith in Jesus Christ that gives them freedom as it gave us adulterers and fornicators and everything we are. We are a welcoming and affirming place. It's unbelievable. There's such acceptance in this place because of what Jesus has done. Because under the cross, the ground is level. It's completely level, Lucas, between you and your daddy. And I know your daddy is a very good man. But you're equal under the cross. Both of you bring nothing to God except the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nothing. So be strengthened, brothers and sisters. Come to God with the blood of Jesus. Come to God with the righteousness of Jesus. He's an equal access forgiver. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to meditate on these things that more and more we will come to love. Our Savior Jesus Christ, who is a sin offering on the cross that all who look to him may be saved. We pray in Jesus' name.